I appreciate you um, for working with our crazy schedules here and, and getting yeah. us um, scheduled in. But I listened to another podcast that you were on, and uh, you have a, a crazy background um, or very interesting background, I guess I should say. Uh, do you have a lot of family members that have been diagnosed with uh, diabetes? And I didn't know that. I, I've never heard anyone that like, you have like nieces and cousins and I think your mother. So can you yeah. go into that a little bit? Like tell us about your yeah. family history and introduce yourself, of course, um, and tell us about that. Yeah. So I'm Mary Ellen Phipps. I'm the registered dietitian behind milkandhoneynutrition.com. And I have been living with type one since I was five years old. And we know from decades of research, one of the strongest predictors of developing type one diabetes is a family history. And I'm like the poster child for that. Uh, so we have, my mom has type one. Hers was kind of a weird story. She actually developed it while she was pregnant with me. They thought it was gestational diabetes, but she had like none of the risk factors that would make them think she would develop gestational diabetes. And then it never, never went away. Uh, and then her older sister shortly before that was diagnosed with type one. So my aunt, um, then I was diagnosed at five years old. Uh, and then my nephew, I have a, a younger brother, his little boy was diagnosed with type one a couple years ago, uh, as well. And then the fun little caveat we always throw in there too, is my mom has another sister who did not ever develop type one, but she happened to marry someone who has type one. So we just like, like to keep it all in the family around here. <laughs> so it is. So I talked with, um, I don't know if you ever heard of him, uh, Dr. Philip Ovedia. He's a cardiac heart surgeon. Um, okay. He he posts a lot of good information on Instagram, and I asked him about um, genetic. Well, I guess it was mainly towards type two diabetes. Is type two diabetes as prevalent in family histories as type one? Because it seems like type one is very like it, it. It matters a lot about your family genetics, but is type two the same way? Yeah, so I think type two, there's definitely a strong genetic component. Um, but it's with type one and type two diabetes, we have the same end goal, we're trying to manage blood sugars, um, we're trying to eat in a healthy way to promote those stable blood sugars, two totally different ways you get to diagnosis and two totally different types of conditions, uh, in terms of like what gets you there. So I think where people tend to see the genetic factor bigger for type one is that is one of the sole. we really have like, um, you've got with type one, the genetic component of family history, you've got certain viral conditions, uh, that can also cause it that can, um, you know, like, um, that, uh, encountering those viruses as a young child can increase your risk. Whereas with type two, there's a whole host of different things happening that come together, um, to contribute to a diagnosis. One of which is the genetic component. Um, so they're both equally important. We just kind of lose sight on the type two sometimes, type two side sometimes, uh, because there's so many other things that can contri contribute to it as well. So growing up with type one diabetes and having a, a, a large family history with, with diabetes, is that what got you into your line of work? Let me turn this off. Yeah. So when I was diagnosed with type one, uh, I was five years old. And so that was 1991. And we've come a long way since then. But back then, there was one type, there was very few types of insulin, you were very regimented in what you had to eat. And so there was not a whole lot of freedom in terms of 
the activities I got to do, the foods I got to eat. But my parents did a fabulous job of helping me feel like a normal kid. I think partially because my mom had it too, but they just, I felt like a normal kid, which is a huge testament to how they raised me and what they did for me. Uh, but it, I was very limited. And so as time progressed, we really start to, started to see diabetes technology and treatments come a long, long way. And so with this though, there's now a lot more freedom for people with type one diabetes and what they can eat and what they can do. But sometimes those recommendations have haven't always caught up. And so I noticed, um, like, especially in high school, and I'd always been interested in nutrition, kind of forced to be interested in it because of growing up with it. Um, I noticed that the recommendations were not keeping up with the types of insulin and treatments we had access to. And that's kind of always been my goal. And one of the things I get a lot of joy out of is showing people with diabetes of all types of diabetes, how you can eat all those things that, you know, maybe mainstream medicine has told you you can't have. Um, so, you know, we talk about pastas and breads and desserts and all these kind of things. I wrote a whole cookbook on it kind of thing, like of really just kind of flipping the script and saying, no, we're going to make the food work for you and not the other way around. Interesting. So what's, what is the, the educational requirements? Cause you're a registered dietitian, right? Mm -hmm. So what does the schooling look like for that? So for me, it's changed since I went through school, but, um, base level is you have an undergraduate degree, which can technically be in anything, but like a lot of people who go on to graduate education, there's some core classes you have to hit um, in order, but your major can technically be anything. Mine was in nutrition sciences. And when I went through school, you did not have to have a master's. Now you have to have a master's mm -hmm. and about uh, 1200 hours or not about 1200 hours of a supervised practice in supervised practice internship. Um, it's great. 1200 hours of no pay in most places. Uh, but, and then once you've completed those, you can sit for um, your credentialing exam, which is like any other healthcare profession where you have to sit and take the exam. And then you maintain that over the years through continuing education and different requirements. Interesting. That, okay. That is, that is pretty hardcore. That's, I mean, that's comparable to other medical practices. I think, I mean, as far as the time, it is, it is. And I think because there's the, and we can go down this road if you want to or steer down another path, but I think because everybody, food relates to everybody, everybody eats. Uh, so a lot of people think they're an expert in food. And so when they hear about the training that registered dietitians have, a lot of times it's like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe they do know a little bit more. Maybe I can gain something from that. So I really appreciate you asking that question. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm always interested in, in hearing people's career paths. Um, just because I've changed mine a couple of times recently and I'm going back to school now and I'm always interested in to hear how other people have to yeah. shovel their way through the education process when you were going through school and, and where you're at now, is it kind of a, a shocking thing of what you learned in school? I, I've talked to a lot of people that say like what I learned in school is basically back ass backwards to what really helps in, in real life and what really makes an impact to making people healthier. Do you kind of feel the same way or do you think what you learned in school and what they taught you at, 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 at your university is, is, is holds true to what you do today? Oh, I'm absolutely with you. I like what I learned back in school, definitely to today, uh, is it, it, the, it has not caught up with what we have seen in research and what we know to be actually working for patients with diabetes. Now, what they're teaching today in schools, I still think is a little bit behind, but it's definitely getting better. Um, we, you know, we're, we kind of, I'm assuming we're about the same age here, like growing up in the nineties and early two thousands of just that kind of diet culture mentality. And it, 
pervaded into uh, the diabetes world of just this restrictive mindset. You can't have this and you can't have that. And you, you have to only eat this kind of thing. Whereas now we know that we really can make food work for patients and really training. My hope is to, as we see, like training new dietitians and new professionals to really learn how to do that on an individual basis with different patients and clients. What do you think is the gap? Like, why does it take so long for the education system to catch up to what um, is actually helpful to today or today's technology in general? Because I, it seems like that's an overarching theme across every subject that we talk about. It's, it's like, oh well, you know, is it the textbooks have to be updated? Like, what's the, why is it so slow? I think, I, I think it's everything put together. So you get, you get top of the line, frontline research, it takes years for that to make it to, if not like a decade to make it to a textbook to be taught. Mm -hmm. Because once that happens, where at my level, what I'm doing, I can get granular into the research and see what we're seeing. And I can start talking about it. Whereas that then has to become a collection of studies that then get passed on to entities like the USDA and American Diabetes Association to then get considered down the road for incorporation into recommended practice guidelines and all sorts of things and have papers written about it. Um, and so it, I, I want to be careful because that needs to happen. We need to have proper protocols and checks in place. You don't just want to be spitting off information as it um, becomes available. So it's kind of a double-edged sword of like, you want to get things out there as quickly as possible, but you also don't want to potentially give out false information as well. So yeah, it's kind of a tricky, tricky line to walk. That's a, that's a great point. I, I feel kind of, I, I'm I'm a glass half full kind of guy, I guess. And I, I kind of always yeah. look, I'm just kind of more of a pessimistic kind of person. I'm like, man, why is it so damn slow? Like there's always like in my head, it's like, well, it comes to money, but yeah, I guess the, the data has to be vetted out properly. So that makes perfect mm -hmm. sense. I didn't, I, I've never really thought about it from that perspective. Um, just so we got, just so we can get grounded here. Can you explain what the differences between type one and type two diabetes are? Yeah. So type one diabetes is an autoimmune condition, which basically means that your immune system freaks out. And we now kind of st are starting to see autoimmune conditions as this umbrella. And then you've got like all these conditions that can kind of pop up as a result of a wonky immune system. And so type one diabetes is one of these conditions. And basically your immune system decides to attack the beta cells in the pancreas. And those beta cells are what produce insulin. And so it's, uh, there's different theories on how long this takes. We now know that beta cell destruction can start up to possibly even a year before you would start to see symptoms in an actual person. Um, it's really cool. The testing that's now available for that for high risk people, but we can talk about that later, but um, it's, so the immune system kills off the beta cells and basically you have kind of a pancreas that can't really do its job, but nothing else in the body. No, no other organs know you have diabetes. So that's why we have the outside introduction of insulin, whether it's through injections or pump um, and kind of walking that line of eating in a way to balance blood sugars. Because the, the tricky part with type one is yes, we can inject insulin, but injected insulin doesn't work as quickly as if it was being produced from your pancreas. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we start to talk about nutrition and the types of foods we eat together and combining certain foods together and things like that. And then type two is um, instead of everything getting 
cut off quickly, like in type one, it's more of a metabolic condition where things progress slowly. It's a perfect example of why we encourage those yearly checkups and you get in there and you get your numbers checked because you can start to see some insulin resistance and less effective insulin from your pancreas uh, long before you would see symptoms. And so if you can catch it in those early stages, that's where we can keep people in that pre-diabetes phase or potentially even reverse uh, pre-diabetes or early uh, type two diabetes. And so type two diabetes and prediabetes are kind of this continuum on a timeline. And so you get too far on the timeline before you catch it and we can't, we can't really go back. And so the pancreas as that insulin resistance, it's not, the insulin isn't working as effectively. It starts to kick out more insulin. So you start to see insulin levels in the bloodstream grow up, go up. Uh, and then that pancreas starts working too hard. And it's just like a motor. If it has mm. to work too hard for too long, it's going to start to die off. And then you have insulin deficiency. And that's when we will, usually along those lines, see um, insulin dependent type two, where insulin has to be introduced at that phase. So different mechanisms of them developing, uh, but that same end goal of, you know, managing blood sugars. And that's another thing I'm really passionate about. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times in the diabetes community, you, you kind of see these two camps of type one and type two, and people kind of going at each other about which one's worse and whatever, which is silly when you say it out loud, but really just kind of helping people see like, we have the same end goal. Like we can bond over the fact that both of these diseases kind of suck <laughs> and we can, we can kind of, uh, come together over that. Uh, I heard you say that in another podcast and I kind of wanted to hit on that. What, so it's, it, do type ones look at like type twos and say, well, I can't do anything about mine because it, you know, I, I'm forced to have this, but you can, is it that kind of, Oh, absolutely. Okay. And I say that as a person with type one and who used to think that way. And it's a really shameful thing to realize that, you know, you used to contribute to the stigma of it. And it it really comes down to type two has the stigma of, well, it's because you're lazy or it's because you ate too much or it's because you don't exercise enough. And this could not be further from the truth. We type two, like I said earlier, is this whole like, conglomerate of things that come together and result in a diagnosis. And there's no one thing that causes the type two diagnosis. And it, a lot of the type one community, though it is getting better, um, kind of, I think as a defense mechanism, will say sometimes, well, well, but mine's genetic or mine, I can't help it um, or things like that. And um, I, I really try to stress to people like we, there's a whole host of things that can cause type two and saying those things just further contributes to the stigma of why you're being defensive. And it's just this cyclical thing that starts to happen. So, so, so type two, I, I have the thought and, and forgive me if this sounds ignorant or harsh, but I kind of have the thought like you, you, you led a, a, a sloppy life or you, you take shortcuts in your nutrition, or maybe you were raised with, you know, on, on a particular set of values or a particular lifestyle that led to you getting diabetes. So I agree with you. It's not just one thing, but isn't it like, uh, is it, is it too simplifying or am I oversimplifying it by saying you didn't exercise and you ate way too much, uh, processed foods and you ate too much, sweets and candy. Is, is it too simple to say something like that or, or to think that that's how you get type two diabetes? 
Absolutely. Now, those things can contribute a lack of physical activity and a diet that's not rich in fiber and fruits and vegetables and things like that can absolutely contribute to it. But those aren't the only things. We've also got stress. We've also got mm. hormone levels. We got where do you store bad, uh, excuse me, where do you store fat on your body? And that's where we started to get into the genetic predisposition uh, as well. And you also look at people who've been uh, pregnant. And if you have a history of gestational diabetes, that the tax, the taxing nature of that on your body while pregnant also contributes to a very much increased risk of developing type two later on. Um, so you're not wrong to highlight those things, but I think where the converse, the, the problem with that is often the conversation stops there and we really have to look at the whole, um, of everything else. Agreed. Does, does diabetes, uh, attack one gender more than the other? either type one or type two? So with it's, type two, it's um, across the board, pretty, pretty even 50, 50 uh, type one. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head there. I feel like the percentages are slightly more uh, males, hmm. but in reality, it's, it's about pretty close to 50, 50. Okay. So how do you help people? What's, what's kind of the number one thing that you always go to that this is in your toolbox whenever people come to you, um, whether it be type one or type two, um, what, what do you do and what kind of advice do you, do you give to folks? Yeah. So my mantra is fat, fiber, protein. If you learn nothing else from listening to this today, fat, fiber, protein. And the reason is because what I said earlier, injected insulin um, or even like an oral medication for type two or just managing it through diet and lifestyle. If, if we're dealing with injected insulin or insulin that isn't working as well as it should in the case of type two, that's slower and not as effective. We want to slow down the digestion process, basically. We want to avoid rapid absorption of carbohydrate because your body loves carbs. It needs carbs and it will absorb them very quickly. Uh, but so we want to do things that we can to slow that process down and fat, fiber and protein do that. It causes those nutrients being present, causes the body to take longer to digest um, starch and sugar um, and carbohydrate. And so that's kind of where we get at. And then we kind of start introducing, okay, well, what amounts? And that's step more of an individual thing. But the general concept of how we can increase those three in our diet is what I talk about all day long. What are your thoughts on folks that are transitioning to a carnivore diet or animal-based diet? Um, it's very high in protein, high in animal fats. You know, Sometimes they cook it in beef tallow and, and, and real butter and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? And have you seen people had uh, have success with uh, maybe switching or reversing type two diabetes? I think so. I don't see clients one on one. Okay. Um, so I'm talking to the broader population as a whole. Um, oftentimes, if not done under the supervision of a professional, uh, you're gonna somebody who adopts that kind of diet is going to be lacking in fiber big time. Uh, and that is going to start to play itself out down the road with certain health consequences. Um, I don't think somebody uh, who's dealing with prediabetes or type two uh, or type one should adopt that lifestyle. But I also can say everybody's unique and different. If you find something that works for you and you're talking to your healthcare team about it and your lab numbers are staying good, your blood sugars are well managed, then who am I to say that you shouldn't be doing that? Um, so as general as a whole, no, I'm not going to teach people how to eat that way because I don't think it's um, the right thing to do. However, just because it works for you, like, doesn't mean you have to suddenly change and listen to me. Right. And again, assuming you're under the care of your healthcare team. Yeah, I'm always amazed that 
uh, talking to different people, you know, some, I don't, I'm not a big believer in, in a plant-based diet. Like I don't, I don't, I don't think that it could be, or for me personally, I don't, I don't think I could do it long-term. I tried it for like two weeks and I, I just about died. I, I passed out almost at the end of it. Um, but I know some people that have been vegan for, um, you know, seven, 10 years and they're healthy as hell. You know, they, they look great. Their skin looks good. Their teeth looks good. they they have a healthy body weight. Um, and then I know some people that, you know, have not been able to maintain that kind of diet for themselves. Um, so it, it's amazing how different our bodies are. Um, and, and, you know, what we can sustain. Well, and I think you just said it, like we're all different and there's more than just, okay, what is physically best for my body that plays into how we decide to eat? Like, how are you emotionally on that? It sounds like you weren't doing so hot emotionally (laughs) on that. Um, How do you feel fulfilled? Do you feel satisfied? Do you enjoy eating that type of food? Um, a, A lot of times in the nutrition space, we sometimes forget that eating is a pretty fun experience. It's this joyful thing that brings people together. It brings us a lot of joy. And when you remember, move that you're just you're it's really difficult to be successful um and so we we need to consider kind of both the physical and the emotional when it comes to figuring out what works for each person i mention this book at nauseam all the time but um have you heard of eat for your blood type i have heard of that do you follow any of those practices or or recommendations in it I've heard of the book. I've never read okay. it. Um, it's not something that I, a lot of people in the healthcare community subscribe to. Um, again, if you try something like that and it happens to work for you, I can't say that that doesn't work for you. Huh. Uh, so I, I think it's, I do think it, books like that tend to, and again, I haven't read it, but they tend to make a lot of promises and a lot of absolutes. And that's where I, as a they, Dietitians start to take issue and not just with that, but like even other eating plans where they say like, this is the best way. And this is the one way. And it's like, well, you're losing the nuance, um, in nutrition and food there because nutrition is not black and white. It is very gray and it is very nuanced. Agreed. Um, I feel the same way. I, I, I did read it and then want to go like all in. And so I'm, I'm type, uh, I'm B positive. And, uh, so I wanted to go all in, be positive way. And then it tells me to eat a lot of fish and I just don't like fish. I just, I hate yeah. it. But in conversations with people, like I was at a work conference a couple of weeks ago and, um, it says in the book that if you're type a, that you can, you benefit largely from a plant-based diet. So a lot of people that I was eating with, um, um we started talking about diet and, and nutrition and I would ask them if they were vegan, if they were, uh, type a, and a mo- like nine times out of 10, they were all type A and they were eating a vegan food, which is, oh, that's weird. Which is kind of random. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I-, I think there's something to it. But like you said, there there's a lot of nuance that uh, that we may forget. So what um, in regards to nutrition and, and cooking, one of the main things that I think uh, diabetics are always told to stay away from is bread. And I know in your cookbook, you, you get around that. So what are some ways that you can get around and incorporate some, some bread in, in your daily diet? Yeah. So there's two different ways we can look at it again with that overarching umbrella of fat, fiber, and protein. Um, so the first would be, you think about a slice of white bread. Do I want you to go eat a slice of white bread by itself? No, absolutely not. But if you really like white bread, we're going to find a way for you to enjoy white bread. So you take that piece of white bread and you think of like, specifically protein and fiber sources that we could add on top of that. You can put an egg on top of it. 
You can put a mashed up avocado. We have plant-based fat, but avocados are also high in fiber. Um, you could add uh, like a nut-based spread. You could sprinkle some chia seeds or some hemp seeds on top of that nut spread. Um, things like that. Upping that uh, specifically protein and fiber content along with the bread. And then the second way is to find a bread that is higher in protein and fiber. Now, a lot of people will start to harp on like at the added sugar in bread. I'm honestly not as concerned about that if it's got a good amount of protein and fiber in, in it. And the way we usually find types of bread like that is the ones that add all the like nuts and seeds and you get that really dense like loaf. Um, that's actually a great way to, if you're going for just the type of bread, um, that's a great thing to look for of like what what breads have added like nuts and seed or using whole grain flour, things like that. Are you talking about like Ezekiel bread or bread that you make at the house yeah. or like homemade bread? No, like, like Ezekiel bread. Like okay. I have a whole, this is a very hot topic. I have, it's one of to date, uh, every month is one of the most popular blog posts on my website is I went, just went to the grocery store and I was like, okay, here's the ones that, and again, these are not the end all be all. Like you absolutely have to eat one of these, but here's the, all the ones that have a lot of protein and fiber in them and are, Tastes really good. Yeah. So there's Ezekiel and then there's a, I'm going to butcher the hell out of it, but it's like a scene, a scene bread or something. A scene. Oh, I don't know. I've never. I, Spell I, it. I, I, I don't know. I could be, uh, <laughs> I, could, <laughs> I could be saying the wrong thing, but yeah, I think it's uh, Ezekiel and a scene or something like that because that's what bread. So we ended up buying a uh, switching to Ezekiel bread. Um, but my kids hate it though. They don't, they don't like, they like, yeah. the, you know, the fake, I guess, ultra processed bread that we've been letting them eat for years on end. So, well, and so that's the thing too, is then there's plenty of, we don't eat foods in isolation most of the time. There's other ways. And that's what we, when we start to talk about like rice and pasta and tortillas and other things, like if you don't want to buy the version that's loaded with like protein and fiber or whatever, you don't have to, there's all sorts of other foods you can pair with it that get you those nutrients. Yeah. So if there's multiple ways to approach it. So what is your thought with pairing the bread or yeah, the bread with some fat and, and protein? Is it because it, it, it keeps the, the, the spike down because you pair it with other food mm -hmm. or is that what your thought is? Yeah. So think about, it. I'm going to try to um, mimic this on screen. It's going <laughs> to be a little butchered, but bear with me. So when you, you've got your baseline blood sugars, when you eat, it goes up and it comes down. Now, if you have type one, you're injecting insulin and it does this. Um, if you have type two and it's diet controlled or whatever it may be, um, you're going to have this rise. If you just have white bread by itself, it's going to go up really fast and it's going to come down really fast, hopefully. Uh, but if we get either like, you know, the piece of bread that in and of itself has more protein fiber or the piece of white bread that you've put like some mashed up avocado and an egg on top, you're going to get a much more blunted response. Hmm. Think of it as like the same area under the curve, but it's a different shape. Okay. And because, and the reason we're okay with that and we want that is because it's the real rapid swings in blood sugar that cause damage to the body. The more stable we can keep it, the better for our bodies long-term. Do you uh, constantly measure your, like, do you track your, your vitals every day or you're just, you got it so down pat that you don't have to now? What do you mean by vitals? Well, I mean, your, your blood sugar and, and, and that, like, do you track it every day or do you feel comfortable enough? Like you just, you've been doing it so long that you're good. Oh no, that's, that's part of life with type one. That's okay. a, that's a, every hour, every multiple it's, times an hour. I wear a continuous glucose monitor. If I didn't have long sleeves on, I could show you. Um, and then I also wear, I have one of the insulin pumps that communicates with it. Uh, and so, yeah, no, that's a, that's a have to, 
part of living with type one. Now type two, depending on where you're at in that timeline we talked about, will determine like how often you need to check your blood sugar and things like that. Uh, but with type one, no, from the day you're diagnosed, that's a, um, you know, back when I was diagnosed, we didn't have continuous glucose monitors. So it was a checking before and after each meal and at bedtime kind of thing. But now with this technology, I wear that 24 seven. And so it's just on my phone over here. And if I go too high or too low, it sends an alarm so I can then, you know, make adjustments as needed. So it just sticks on your arm. I've always wanted to ask that it doesn't actually prick your arm. It just sticks on your arm or it does. No, prick. it does. Um, so it's a, it's like a device. I have it right here, but, um, you, it's a, it comes with like a little loading mechanism and it, there's a teeny tiny little wire that they use a needle to inject it. And then the needle retracts back and the little bitty wire stays in okay. your skin. Uh, and then it transmits information to, they have like PDMs that you can use separately, or most people just have it sent to their phone because that's easier. Um, and yeah. So what do you do if it does spike? Like what, a, what are the, I guess, factors or what do you have to eat other things? Do you have to walk or exercise? Like, so what are some things that you do? Yeah, there's a whole host of things you can do. Like if it, usually I tell people, you know, give it an hour or two see how you respond. If after two hours, you're still over a certain number and your doctor can tell you what number they're comfortable with, um, then you can either, if you're on insulin, you can inject extra insulin. Uh, if you have like your, the, do your doctor will give you like a set of steps that you can go for a walk. Um, you, you know, depending on what else is going on, maybe you do eat a little bit more with extra insulin. Um, that's, that's one of those individual things that, um, your care team is going to give you a recommendation for. Yeah. We, I was talking with a friend and I, I was telling them about, about your background and, and how you have type one diabetes. And I never thought about, about it this way until I was talking to him. You know, I try to eat relatively healthy. Uh, I try not to gorge on food. Like if I, I do better just if I stay away, if I stay away, I'll be good. But as soon as I like open the door, like it's, it's no holds bar. I'm going to eat everything in sight. It's like, I just don't know how to say no. And I, I say no and, and I can say no, but if I want to, I can indulge. Like it's, uh, there's nothing negative that's going to happen other than I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be bloated and I'm going to feel like crap. But for, for someone that's, that's a diabetic, they legitimately have to say no, right? Like you, you can't indulge or over consume. You, you have to kind of walk this fine line pretty much. Right. Yeah. I, yes and no. So the example I always use is Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. Mm. But, you know, Thanksgiving comes around once a year. I love pumpkin pie. It is one of my favorite desserts ever. Is it going to spike my blood sugar? Yeah. Do I still want to have a piece? Absolutely. And I'm going to enjoy it. Do I want to then like gorge out on other stuff? No, because I want to enjoy the day with my family and I don't want to physically feel ill. Mm. And so that's the choice that we have to make as um, thinking about the foods you really enjoy and how you want to eat. What we were talking about earlier, like I was telling you, you need to eat fish. You don't really like fish. You don't have to eat fish, that kind of thing versus how it uh, uh, physically makes you feel and where those intersect. And so for people with type one, yes, a lot of times the decision is what I love to have some ice cream. Yes. Can I have some ice cream? Yes. 
I have to think about, do I have, so like that example would be, do I have the time to give myself what we call a pre-bolus, give myself my insulin 15 to 20 minutes beforehand and then enjoy it so that I don't spike later on. And for me, if I don't have the time to do that, I'm not going to have it because I know how it's going to make me physically feel later on. And then we also have the future thinking of if this pattern is repeated over and over of high blood sugars, the impact down the road of, you know, shortening the lifespan, leading to complications, things like that. So technically the answer is yes, you can, if you want to, and no, you don't have to, if you don't want to. Um, but it's really that intersection of the physical effect and the emotional effect and the balance of those two. Right. At what point in your life did you, um, because you have two books out, right? Yes. Two so, cookbooks. And the first book was, um, well, the second book was the dessert cookbook, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, what made you want to do the books? Like what, like what spawned it? Yeah. So we'll back up a little bit before that. So one of my, I have a, one of my grandmothers uh, taught me from a very young age. She saw what I was talking about earlier, just the lack of flexibility and the lack of freedom in what I could eat. And, but she was like, love to bake. She was a world renowned baker. Uh, and so she's the one who got me in the kitchen to say like, there's gotta be a way that we can make these things to where you can enjoy them. And so that kind of started that love for cooking and wanting to do this. And so uh, since then, like all through high school and college, like writing a cookbook was always on my bucket list. I just mm. didn't really know how it was going to happen. Uh, and so I started my career. I did um, employee wellness for a long time at uh, MD Anderson here in Houston. And then after I had my two kids, I quit to stay home quickly realized stay at home mom life was not for me. It just wasn't what filled my bucket. I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. Um, but so I started, um, milk and honey nutrition just as like a, let's just see what we can make of this. Uh, it started out as a private practice and then kind of morphed into the blog. And, uh, at the time, just the Instagram and Facebook accounts and a publisher found me on Instagram and, uh, I'd had offers before, but they weren't really, uh, everything like topic pay, anything just wasn't lining up with where I was at. And, th but this publisher was like, we love your approach to diabetes. Like, uh, we want to add a diabetes cookbook to our, uh, catalog. Uh, what do you want to write about? Like, what do you want it to be about? And so I had a ton of freedom with that first one, um, to kind of preach my message of fat fiber protein, do all those recipes that people maybe assume they can't have. Uh, and it kind of went from there. And then for, for that one, we had a really cool opportunity uh, that, you know, one of those were like, everything seems to fall into place. And you're just like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, I got to go on QVC wow. uh, to promote that one. So that was really fun. Uh, and because I think because of that, and it was just really well received, they offered me the second one about desserts pretty quickly, or they offered me a second one. And I said, well, only if it can be about desserts, because that's just a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then they're kind of like sister books they are formatted the same, same message. Um, obviously, we talk more about desserts in the second one. But yeah. Man, that's so awesome that a publisher found you through social media. That's, that's, I, you're like the third person I've talked to that someone's reached out to them via freaking Instagram randomly. Yeah. Well, and I think too, if you're someone listening in this space, the publishers recognize the power of social media. And if you have a large enough platform, they know you're going to be able to help sell books. Uh, because, you know, unless you're like an uber famous celebrity, odds are your book's not going to like end up on the New York times bestseller list. But if you can help promote it through other channels and like my media work, like we talked about kind of uh, the stations I've been on here in Houston, um, that, that kind of plays into their decision of what authors they want to sign and how right. they want to go about it. So when you first started milk and honey, what was your goal? Like what, what was the, I guess the business statement and what were you trying to do? Um, 
I, I've had someone ask me this before and it made me laugh because my the honest answer is I wanted to make enough money to put my kids in Mother's Day out. And <laughs> so but then I I quickly realized like, oh, I really like this like online education component. And I can reach so many more people this way than just seeing people one-on-one. And I also had realized earlier in my career that like, I didn't really like the one-on-one setting. Clinical nutrition was not something I wanted to be in every day. Um, But my, my goal in this is to um, give a little bit of hope and joy back to people with diabetes through nutrition education, but also something else I realized um, not immediately, but over, you know, after about a year or two of doing it on Instagram and the blog is like telling people my story. Yes. Telling them my successes, but also showing them that like, I mess up my carb counting too. Sometimes it is what it is and you move on and just kind of helping people feel like they're not alone in this journey. Do you, um, or, or did you, um, help people that are not diabetic or or are you laser focused on, on, on diabetes? Now I've, I've kind of niched it, niched into, uh, exclusively diabetes. Uh, early on I was, uh, again, I was just trying to help a family earn an income. And so, uh, I, I did kind of everything that was in my wheelhouse, usually diabetes or anything adjacent to that. Hmm. Um, you know, the nutrition field is a lot like the medical field. Like you're not going to go to a podiatrist if you have a heart problem kind of thing. So we kind of all have our specialties and things we're comfortable talking about and things we're not comfortable talking about. Um, but especially in the online space, my approach is that you're going to be a lot more successful if you are that one expert that people go to for that one thing versus the person who kind of talks about a lot of everything, you know? So that's kind of when I started to, and you know, around the same time, realizing like the power of just kind of sharing my own experience and letting people take it for what it is. Yeah. People can relate to it because you're, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because you're, you're type one diabetic and you just, you add a a lot of validity to the conversation because you live through it your entire life. Well, and I think too, a lot, there's a lot of, um, still to this day, distrust in the medical community and it's rightfully or not rightfully. So when people hear that, the person who's telling them, you know, giving them advice on what to do understands what it's like to go through it too. Mm. Um, I think there's more trust and more likelihood to maybe actually do those things than, you know, a person sitting in an office who they think maybe has no clue what this is like. Yeah. No, that's a good point. You mentioned that you didn't, uh, vibe well with the clinical practice. What, what was throwing you off and why didn't you really care for it? it's just like any profession. Like we go to school to study these things and there's a whole host of different things you can do with different types of degrees. Um, I like the more creative side of how to educate people and, uh, crafting these understandable message, excuse me, messages. And when you get into the clinical, you're getting into the nitty gritty and planning. And there's some incredible dietitians out there who are so skilled at clinical nutrition and, are really good. And I refer people to them. Um, my actually technically my very first job out of school was in an endocrinologist office. Cause that's mm. what I thought I wanted to do. And that I, there was, I remember about six months in, I was doing diabetes education. I got back to my apartment and I like wanted to throw my own pump against the wall. I was so sick of diabetes. And I was like, this is not good for me. Um, I needed to kind of stay, take a step back. And so that's why I moved over to employee wellness. Uh, and then this, this broader picture of diabetes education allows me to look at the bigger message and teach rather than getting into the nitty gritty of analyzing pump charts and blood sugars and things like that with people. 
I imagine that it, it has to be pretty confined too. Like now that you're you work for yourself, you got the freedom. I mean, I know you're 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 focused on diabetes, but you're you got the freedom to do and talk how you want. When I feel like if I know nothing about this, but I feel like in a clinical practice, you have to like abide by these pretty standardized guidelines. Not necessarily. No? I think that's uh, if you are going to a good clinician, they know how to. They know what the recommended practice things are, but the ability of a good clinician to take that and then see how it applies to an individual is, is key. Hmm. Um, there is some freedom in working for myself and being able to say, uh, certain things. But I, again, if I, even if I was working for myself in private practice, seeing patients that that's drastically different, hmm. uh, in the messages you'd say and things like that. So, so milk and honey, let's, let's talk about that. It's, it's, uh, I mean, you're able to, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're getting paid off, uh, off social media now too, right? Yeah, I have yeah. for a long time. That's that was a, the, that's awesome. <laughs> it, it, uh, it's definitely one of those, it's always funny. Like when people ask me what I do, cause I'll, who you are and how I've interacted with you and the vibe I get from you will largely dictate what I tell you, like what I say when you ask me what I do. Right. Um, Cause there's certain people who, when you say, Oh, well, I started an Instagram account and now I have a blog and I do that full time who get it. And they're like, Oh, that's so cool. And then there's certain people who are like, Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Like, they just don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And it's, it's this whole new frontier of um, basically creating a marketing platform and, you know, you can monetize it in multiple different ways. Um, I like the freedom of, I want to go volunteer up at my kid's school, I can peace out at 11 a.m. and go do what I want. Yeah. If I want to go on a two-week vacation, I can do that. Um, there's ebbs and flows just like any industry. But um, yeah, you can, another thing people don't realize, you can monetize at any point. Like you don't have to have this massive following um, to do that. What What was the first um, aha moment for you whenever you were like, hey, I can make money off social media? Like what? what was that like? Yeah. So I didn't even know the idea of like a sponsored post existed uh, until I, it was fall of 2015 is when I started my Instagram account. Didn't even have a website at that point in time. And, you know, I just was like, I'm going to see where this goes. I'm going to post some recipes. I'm going to follow some other dietitians. And then I started to see like, you know, them like certain posts would say sponsored and they'd have like a branded thing there. And I'm like, I think they're getting paid for this. How does this work? And so I actually took a free webinar um, on like just kind of the whole influencer space. And it was for people in the food space. I was like, this is really interesting. And I knew um, like if I wanted to do this, I could, and I needed to buckle down. Um, I knew from like past experiences at and media work I'd done that I had the skill set needed to, and the presence to kind of be on camera and do that. And so it just kind of went from there. Uh, one of the things too, that I think has been cool is to pair the social media side with the blog and Google and SEO side uh, and how those intermix with each other. Uh, and that, that can happen later on, you know, as you build, as you build an online business, but it's been really fun to get to create a brand and, kind of do what I want and in this space. Do you feel consumed in the, in the social media life? Do you feel pressured to maintain posts and posting at a certain time? Cause even with the podcast, it's like, you know, Oh, I gotta, I gotta get this post in, you know, between a certain amount of time. And I'm getting to the point where I'm like, eh, if I post it, I post it, whatever. But do you like, what goes through your mind from a daily basis from the social media pressures? Yeah, that's an 
Excellent question. If you'd asked me like three years ago, I would have said, absolutely, yes. Like I have to keep up with everything. But I think COVID and some other personal things I went through, I kind of had to take a step back and reassess and realize that like, I'm the only one putting that pressure on myself. These people out here are thankful to get to either, you know, regardless of what you're talking about, like be educated, be entertained, that they're not going to be like, super disappointed or depressed or whatever, or mad at you if you miss a day or whatever. And so that takes a lot of the pressure off. Now, some people are, and well, that's what a block button is for, (laughs) but um, no, it's a really, it's a very hard balance to achieve. And I definitely did not always have it. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to constantly be posting and keeping up. Uh, But no, I, I have a good, I'm at a point now where I try to keep a regular rhythm uh, of posting consistently, not every day, um, but also recognizing, like setting those boundaries for yourself of like, this is the time I'm going to be on my phone and I'm going to engage. And then this is the time that I'm not. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, you, you have so some back to milk and honey. It's a, it's a, you have, you have a website, you blog, you're on Instagram and you're on TikTok. So you're, you're managing all those posts, right? It's not just me. I have okay. some help. Um, I have uh, a virtual assistant and um, a couple people that like do some of the the back end work uh, for me. But yes, uh, it's it would be a lot to do all of that on my own. Yeah. Uh, but it's it um, yeah. It's it's basically like a a media umbrella as I call it. And this you know the milk and honey nutrition umbrella. And you know what parts of it do I want to focus on? Um, where do I want those revenue streams coming in? Um, and then on one of those revenue streams, working with brands, like what part of that umbrella do they want access to? Are you on YouTube? Do you have your own YouTube? I am. I am not. Oh, okay. I think I technically have a channel, but I, I don't, I've never used it. I, pi- I picture <laughs> you like, you know, cooking recipes from your cookbook on YouTube and showing people actually how to do it. You know, I could, yeah. I could, it's just one of those things I've never like, gotten into. I, um, Instagram and Facebook, I've always been on Pinterest to kind of have like a, a modest presence there. And then, um, never really got into YouTube, but for some reason, like TikTok caught my eye, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> and I took this like online course I found to learn how to use the app. Cause you know, I'm the elder millennial that didn't know how to use it at the time. <laughs> and, um, it's really become this like hub of education, which has been really cool to see. Uh, and you can kind of create a library of content there just like anybody else. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I, I that's funny. Cause I, I have to ask my daughter sometimes on, on how to do it or do certain filters, yeah. cut, do certain things and attachments. And they're like, Oh, this is how you do it. And I'm like, gosh, I feel fucking old. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same, uh, same. So I, I want to get your opinion on, on, on something, uh, something that I've been done. Di- diving into have you watched the netflix documentary called kiss the ground i have not seen that i don't think i've heard of it definitely it's a definite recommend um but uh, essentially they talk about how the the nutrients in the soil is being degraded due to uh, traditional farming practices so tilling the land spraying herbicides and pesticides on it roundup you know it's, it's being tainted with glyphosate um all that kind of thing and it goes into talking about how our food and our, our crops are getting are basically net less nutritious because of the the amount of degrade degradation going on in the soil. Have you heard anything like that? Are is that on your radar? 
Um, yeah, yeah I mean, I've think? certainly heard topics like that, and it's a big topic in the ag community, which obviously impacts nutrition. Um, I, again, I haven't seen that movie, so I can't say for sure. But my concern with messages like that, and anytime someone says Netflix documentary, I kind of have this like, oh, okay, yeah, here we go. Same, same. Um, <laughs> but uh, is the 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 fear tactics that are that are employed in that, and mm. really kind of you know, we've seen it with the organic message of people like now just not eating fruits and vegetables because they're afraid of non-organic, but they can't afford organic and just kind of the harm that can be done there. So the, the, that general message and, um, like point that you're making about that is it's definitely a concern, but we have to be careful how we communicate that to the public and that it doesn't just have even more harm in the way that we do that. Yeah. I I feel the same way. I'm cause I, what got me to try veganism actually was the the vegan documentaries on Netflix because they painted such a scary picture when I was you know they do. I, I, yeah. I, I was younger. But yeah, regener- regenerative farming is is kind of the buzzword that's going on right now, and um, it, it's basically old school farming practices to help keep the soil healthy and the animals healthy and and the crops healthy, which in turn make us healthy. So I just wanted to get your opinion to see what you thought about that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things going on. I actually uh, got to go on a, a, a beef tour or a cattle tour with mm-hmm. the National Cattlemen's Beef Association uh, last fall. And the the different like land stewardship, uh, like principles that they are employing in that industry is just incredible. And they're like front of the line and kind of what you're saying, getting the land back to its healthy estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really cool when you look at like all the different industries, what they're doing to kind of help pave the way to to make things better. Absolutely. So what's, what's on your, uh, your future agenda? Do you have an, another book coming out? What big things do you have coming? I'm taking a break from cookbooks, okay. uh, for a bit. I had a, I've had a busy like three years there, uh, with cookbooks, but really just kind of plugging into the blog, um, with the way that social media platforms are operating these days and kind of the instability of it, um, really focusing on those entities that I own. And I would say that to anybody with an online business right now, like focus on those entities you own, like your website and your email list and things like that. Obviously still posting on those. Um, I've got a couple fun projects in the works that I can't quite talk about yet, but that should be coming out later this fall. Um, But there's, there's some exciting things uh, in the space that, I'm excited about. That's awesome. So how can people um, find your books? Are they available on Amazon and all? Yeah, all pretty much vehicles? anywhere books are sold. It's the Easy Diabetes Cookbook and then the Easy Diabetes Desserts Cookbook. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Books A Million. Um, you can even go to Booktopia and see if your local like small bookstore um, sells it um, or order it to have it shipped there if you want to shop small and do it that way. Awesome. And what about your social media accounts? How can people find you and follow you? Yeah, so it's Milk In, the letter N, Honey Nutrition on Instagram and pretty much every other platform except for TikTok. I'm Diabetes Nutritionist. All right. Well, Mary, I appreciate yeah. your time. It's been a, a fun learning and, and I can't wait to put this one out. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yep, you have a good one. I'll talk to you later. Okay. All right, bye-bye.